What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Jacob Renner and Trevor Booth. Guys, we're finally in mid-season football after Arizona State loses its first game to USC. Before we get into uh, breaking down the loss, just how are you guys doing? Chris, I know you were, you were out there in L.A. How was it covering the first game of the 2020 season? I'm doing fine. It was a surreal experience. It felt more from the press box, at least like a spring game or some type of a scrimmage, even though the guys were playing really hard just to have no fans in the stands. Uh, You could hear guys yelling um, from, you know, probably a hundred yards away where we were sitting uh, perched uh, on top of the Coliseum. Um, it's just very weird. The ending, I mean, we, we've seen ASU over the years uh, have some bad losses where they were an overwhelming favorite to win games late. And I reflect back even to how ASU lost 10 years ago against USC in 2010, which continued like a, I think like an eight or nine game streak of losing games by five or fewer points in the Dennis Erickson era. Um, they, they just let the game, they let the game uh, get away from them and, and never should have happened. Right. And we'll have a full breakdown in this podcast of everything, what went right, what went wrong. Uh, but Trevor, first off, how are you doing? I know you were out covering the game with Chris. How was the experience for you? Yeah, Mason, really surreal. I, I talked about it on last week's podcast, but full circle for Chris and I going out to the Pac-12 tournament to watch ASU basketball. And then that's when COVID hit. And then sure enough, here we are and we're covering the first game sort of in this COVID return to play period for ASU. Um, Like Chris said, sort of just a surreal environment at the Coliseum. I was talking to him before the name, uh, before the game about the crowd noise that was just coming down from the loudspeakers. And you hear, you know, right in the NBA bubble and then some of these sports that are coming back. But then it's just so weird in in person. It's definitely um, it had that fabricated feel. But, you know, it's something. It's what we have right now. Um, Great experience to be there. Um, like you said, we'll go more into the game, but definitely something to remember. Yeah, most definitely. And Jacob, I know you and I were uh, at home and and very busy, but but still uh, at home covering the game from our couches. How how are you doing today? Yeah, Mason, I'm I'm good. I would say that it was a it was an interesting experience, not because we were covering the game from home, because we've done that before when not all of us travel to a game. But I would think that the the most interesting thing was I knew that the time limit that Chris and Trevor had to deal with. And then we all had to kind of work around the time limits due to COVID and how media weren't allowed to stay in the USC press box longer than two hours. So it definitely was a dynamic that I think we're all getting used to. And it's just these, you know, it's a changing time with everything that's going on. But uh, I'm good and I'm happy to uh, to be on to the next week and excited to be on the podcast with everybody again. That's a great point, by the way, that um, typically, uh, you know, people don't really know exactly how all the sausage is is made (laughs) in covering games, but typically... (laughs) we're probably four hours after the game in the press box, still doing work. Uh, and the COVID protocols, USC shut the press box down about two hours or so after the game had ended. So that contributed to just how quickly that we had to basically work to get everything up. And uh, we did get a, a, you know, our game story after our instant recap and we've got a column and we got all the, the quotes and video of all of the uh, Zooms that ASU had. Uh, I felt like it went reasonably well. It's, I'm never going to be happy with um, 
you know, not being able to do like the entirety of what we've done in the past. But, you know, I think ASU fans probably weren't too interested in reading most of the content anyways. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I, I, for one, I'm going to miss the uh, post-game shows. And, and we'll see if we can do some of that stuff uh, as the season progresses, obviously. But a li- it, it's a different look, but I think we, we nailed a lot of what we needed to. And again, you make a great point about subscribers not necessarily wanting to read everything after a 28-27 to 27 loss, brutal as the Sun Devils were leading by as many i mean it when you look at when you look back at it they they took a lead at a point where they had a 99.9% chance by ESPN's projection to win the game and when that usually happens you can almost all but guarantee uh, a victory and then it slips away in the final four minutes of the game. We're going to get into a, a four-minute breakdown uh, a little bit later, but just generally, passing game, not much going for ASU. Some of these receivers, uh, the, some of the new guys after Frank Darby got hurt, looked a little green uh, in their first game. LV Bunkley-Shelton did catch a team-high four passes. Johnny Wilson had a, a couple of drops, but good coverage by USC defenders. But Jaden Daniels in the first game of the season, not necessarily – Great production, 134 yards, and a touchdown in the passing game. He, but the rushing game, on the other hand, with with some of these new guys, Diamante Trainum has 87 yards and two touchdowns in his first game. Rashad White has a 55-yard receiving touchdown. It, the run game was impressive, and Jacob had a notebook on on the impressive nature of the rushing game. But when you look at it generally, Chris, what were some of your just instant takeaways from this first loss? Wow. Uh, where do we start? So I, th- I think ASU had a very good defensive game plan. Marvin Lewis uh, working with Chris Hawkins, who Hawkins coming from USC and understanding like exactly what they're trying to do schematically within their, their air raid with Graham Harrell. I think that they had the, all, the whole off season to prepare for this. And they had, a, they had a fantastic plan. Essentially they were playing uh, zone 80 to 90 percent of the time we've seen that Keaton Slovis and I've talked about this in the past has struggled with recognizing uh, underneath zone defenders he threw the interception to Merlin Robertson thrown through what should have been an interception to Kyle Soli that went through his hands for the completion ASU gave up nothing virtually nothing outside the numbers with uh, Jack Jones, Chase Lucas, Tamarcus Davis playing sometimes for Jones who had the cramping issues throughout. And uh, essentially ASU wanted to force the checkdowns to the backs, uh, force USC to extend drives that worked virtually flawlessly throughout the, the entire game until, until the, the last few minutes. Um, USC's run game was, was, I would say decent at best. Um, and there were stretches that it, w- it wasn't even decent really. And that is, so the preparations that ASU have for this game, they looked at both a four, two, five base nickel look, and then a three, three, five with Robertson playing sort of an edge roll type of a look. And, and I had heard that they were practicing more in the three, three, five look, but then in the game, they played more of the four, two, five look. I think that was because they were trying to really take away a lot of the run and that's that, that worked that that was effective. So I think that the secondary play, the linebacker play, even the defensive line play for ASU 
were all very good for the most part. Uh, and that's, you know, they, for a huge chunk of the game, they had only given up 14 points. They forced, you know, whatever it was four turnovers. They held USC on a couple of fourth downs, but of course they allowed uh, multiple fourth downs, including two fourth and long touchdowns. The first one was fluky. Um, second one was uh, really not bad coverage. Kiwan Markham was just slightly off of leverage in what looked like cover two uh, on the the uh, the London skinny post into the end zone. And, and Kyle Soley was very close as well, dropping back. Uh, ASU's linebackers got really good depth in their zone coverage against the pass. Um, yeah, offensively, there were there were struggles. You know, the the offensive line, I would say, had moments where it looked pretty good. Um, the run game blocking, really good. Some of those gap scheme stuff that they ran where they had Kellen Deesh and Donovan West pulling around, everybody else down blocking. Uh, that opened up things. Deesh looked to me very impressive for his first start. I think he's he's got a chance to be a really good player, maybe even NFL player. Um, Rashad White, sensational. I mean, absolutely electric. I told people that he's is sort of like Marion Grice, and then like Twitter was like overloaded and the board was like, this guy does look like Marion Grice stuff. Train um, very athletic, physical dude, you know, hard yards. ASU's receivers after Darby went down, that was a major issue. And I think it was limiting because you know, USC's probably going to roll safety coverage over Darby. You don't have to do that with anybody else that's left because you're not threatened in the same way vertically by them. So ASU really had no vertical game and that makes it easier on a defense to be able to squeeze everything down. Uh, and, um, and then, yeah, there was Johnny Wilson. I think he, the game looked too big for him at times, even though he had some very nice blocks. Uh, you know, he, you know, he wasn't able to be composed and get his, his, his head around and his hands ready to make plays on the ball at the ball's arrival. And that's, that's kind of a freshman thing that we see sometimes. LV Bunkley Shelton, uh, he had the fumble, uh, you know, he looked good, but then late he, you know, I think he was not running the right route on a back shoulder on ASU's final possession. And, um, you know, Jane Daniels didn't play great. I think, I think he, he I, th I think it, I think he probably played better than people realize just given every, all the circumstances, the new offense, the not having Darby, the youth of the receivers, the USC's caliber of athlete and defense, but there were some misthrows. There were some indecision. I feel like sometimes he was caught between thinking that the pass rush was going to get to him kind of early. And then should I run? Should I hang into the pocket to try to allow things to develop? But when I watched it back and, and I, I recorded film from the press box, he really didn't miss almost any open receivers. He just had a few throws where his feet, I don't think he set his feet properly. And uh, he just didn't deliver the ball super accurately. But I would say probably only about four or five. Uh, I, I don't think that you can put the loss on him really in any kind of a way. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a overview, I guess, of the game. Sorry to ramble.
No, we 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 love the perspective, and and obviously when you we're gonna zero in more on all of that. But Trevor, I know that you obviously wrote the game recaps, and and there with Chris, from your perspective and point of view, and and when we look at this, I mean ASU beat USC in net rushing yards, two hundred fifty eight to one hundred seventy five. USC had three hundred eighty one passing yards compared to. ASU's 134, and then USC put up 556 yards of total offense compared to ASU's 392. From your perspective, what were some of your key takeaways? Yeah, and Herm Edwards talked about it a lot yesterday. We could look at the last four minutes, which we're going to get into later in this podcast, but he really talked about a lot of moments in the totality of the game where ASU had opportunities that it missed that could have even expanded its leader, had it in a situation where it hadn't had to to rely on those last couple of minutes where it had um, those fourth down conversions that UC, USC had. Um, a couple that stood out to me in the first, in the first quarter, um, ASU forces a three and out from USC, Jack Jones muffs a punt. Um, and then even after that, when they force a USC fumble at the goal line, ASU goes three and out right away. Um, Chris mentioned the Kyle Soli missed interception that was on USC's first touchdown drive in the second quarter. So that was another opportunity that they could have negated. I think they would have gotten the ball around midfield at that point. Um, and then once they did get the interception in the second quarter from Merlin Robertson, it was later in the half um, coming down to the end of halftime, but they didn't score any points off of that. And then in the fourth quarter when they're up um, 10 and then that forced fumble by Chase Lucas and they only get a field goal off of that. That's another opportunity that he was talking about. Um, so a couple things there. Um, and then I think overall being the first game, and we've seen this in football just throughout professionally and then collegially as these seasons have gone underway, just some sloppy play. Um, that um, that muff punt I talked about ASU right away. Um, LV Bunkley Shelton had that fumble in the second quarter. And again, just the opportunities for USC for first turnovers um, for both teams. So either way you look at it, both teams had sloppy moments, but it just seemed like even on top of the, the lead that ASU built, that it had more opportunities to expand itself on that. Right, and I, I would definitely agree in terms of there. it did look sloppy at times it's to be expected with the first game of a season, especially one that's been delayed and not as much practice time for USC amid cohort restrictions, all these things we've talked about on, on previous podcasts. And ASU fumbled it three times. LV Bunkley Shelton, you mentioned the Jack Jones punt. And then on the onside kick with Ricky Pearsall uh, on the hands team, which which was a pivotal turning point, which we'll, we'll get more into. USC also three fumbles and an interception that you mentioned by Keaton Slovis. Jacob, for you and your perspective, uh, a different perspective at that, what were some of the, the main takeaways for you? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody touched on on everything. And so not to belabor any of the points, I think I'll touch on one thing that Chris talked about, and that was ASU's ability to to run block. And they're very successful in the run game. And, and to zero in on one performance that I think could easily fly under the radar was that of a guy who we didn't really project to contribute as much as he did in, in any of the games in any of our preview content. And that's ASU walk-on senior tight end, John Stivers. Transferred from Harvard to ASU over the offseason, and he was actually very effective in ASU's run game. He had a pivotal block on, on a critical block, excuse me, on, a, on DeMonte Trainum's 17-yard touchdown run. Uh, he had a very good performance, as did a lot of ASU's tight ends and offensive linemen during the run game. And it allowed ASU to rush for 258 yards of 392 total yards of offense. So I think the biggest takeaway for me was just ASU's success on the ground and whether or not they'll be able to carry that into their you know subsequent games this season. But I would say that that's the biggest thing for me without going over everything that everybody's already said. Right. And we'll kind of zero in 
more on the 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 final four minutes of this game, which we've alluded to already. ASU goes up 13 on a 41-yard field goal by Christian Zendejas, who made both of his attempts in this game. And it was a decision that we'll kind of get into whether it was right, whether it was wrong. But Christian Zendejas gives ASU the 13-point lead. And the rest of, and this was with 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter, when you when you kind of see the, the game book and the rest of the rundown of the game, there was uh, two fourth down touchdown passes by Keaton Slovis, uh, uh, an onside kick that goes USC's way. This seemed very lucky. Chris, is that how you would categorize the, the final four minutes for USC or what kind of led up to everything going wrong for ASU? It was a combination of luck and ASU, um, you know, not doing enough, really. You know, it's not, it's, you, you got to go back to those, you know, sort of sequences. And I, what I remember is there was a fourth down conversion that ASU gave up uh, prior to the, 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 uh, the first touchdown that was, you know, sort of fluky because, it bounced off um, St. Brown's hands right to Brew McCoy. But before that even happened, um, ASU gave up a, you know, like a fourth and three. Evan Fields on that play was not where he needed to be in the zone coverage. He was a couple we- a couple yards too deep. You have to know that USC is probably going to throw to the sticks. That's the tendency. He was like three yards off the off of the, the the first down marker, and and so they completed that one. Um, you know, it, there there was you know several other sort of things that happened that you know contributed to it. You know, I mean, the, on the the ASU series before that, uh, the Darius Henderson who was playing uh, right guard because Henry Haddis went down at the end of the second half with some sort of an injury. Uh, he got beaten badly uh, on what was uh, a Daniels quarterback draw that I think otherwise might have opened up because that had worked for ASU and Daniels throughout the game uh, to that point against man coverage. So th- then as a result, ASU you know, had, had the punt. Um, then there was the, you know, right after that, before there was the fourth and three, uh, Chase Lucas was maybe slightly soft in coverage and missed an ability to bat down a ball. That was a seven year game on, on second and 10. It would have been, it would have been uh, third and 10 if he gets there, um, you know, and then um, the, the, on the onside kick, that wasn't just luck. What, looking at that really closely again, what I saw was Ricky Pearsall wasn't lined up properly. I think he was clearly too far toward the boundary probably should have been a few yards inside if he's a few yards inside and probably uh, maybe a yard or two even closer, uh, um, he's able to cut that ball off before the outside player for USC would even be able to get around. The USC player never would have been able to get there. There was essentially a pocket in between Kyle Horn and uh, Darian Butler that was that's intentionally created for where the ball is likely going to go and where Pearsall is supposed to basically step up into that pocket to make the play. But he was too far outside and near the boundary. And that's what enabled the USC player who was the furthermost outside to be able to get there and get a fingertip or so either on the ball or on Pearsall's hand 
which contributed to Pearsall being unable to bring it in. And then when we go to what happened on the final drive for USC, um, everybody's going to talk about that fourth and and uh, thirteen, where it was the the you know the touchdown. Um, I mean, pardon me, the fourth and nine, where it was the touchdown. But you know, ASU, you know, there was a uh, there was you know some mistakes that I think led up to that. You know, you had uh, you know you had uh, uh, you know Slovis probably had too much time to work on on some of the earlier plays. Uh, but on the fourth and nine, you had Kiwan Markham who was in the game. Looked like ASU was in cover two. It was a skinny post. You know, Markham maybe was either concerned about uh, about Drake London running, turning that outwardly, or there was a number two receiver that could have uh, also uh, uh, run gone into the end zone toward the corner. So he was maybe a little bit concerned about that. I think he got his leverage uh, uh, maybe a yard or two too much, uh, um, you know, outside of the hash. And then when he came back to the throw, uh, he tried to break it up with his right hand when if he tried to break it up with his left hand, which Herm Edwards alluded to, I think he might have been able to be successful there. So uh, all of that together, it's like the chance that it was definitely a lot of luck, but also ASU had opportunities and and wasn't able to uh, get the job done. Right. And a lot of what you mentioned there, it happens after... ASU recovers a fumble earlier in the fourth quarter and they're already up 13. They force a fumble on, on sophomore running back Marquis step Merlin Robertson recovers Arizona state starts their next drive with six minutes left. And you're thinking, okay, they're going to try and run out the clock. Chris, do you think Zach Hill and the ASU offense maybe got too conservative with six minutes left and tried to, to bleed clock too early leading to this whole sequence of events. Not so much on that series that you're talking about. Uh, that's the series where white had a really nice run with that gap scheme play on first down. Then on the second down though, or on, I'm sorry, on the next play, which was also a first down from the ASU 43 Curtis Hodges got, who had a very good game uh, by the way, blocking, but he got, off late on the snap and he didn't get to his block. And then Kate Cody was also beaten. And that was a loss of three, but I kind of understand ASU running there given that you're up two touchdowns and there's five or so minutes left and you're trying to lead clock. I, in the way that they had run the ball earlier in the game. Now USC was by that point playing with eight, nine man boxes, trying to, you know, limit it. ASU's ability to uh, get first downs via the run. I think where there was probably a little bit too conservative play calling was kind of earlier in that quarter or maybe even late in the third quarter by Zach Hill. I felt like, um, you know, the way that the run game had been going and how USC was starting to creep up to the line of scrimmage, the USC linebackers were getting very sort of impatient and they were really darting up. So there were opportunities for some play actions where you could get the ball to the tight ends, where you can run some slips, where you can do some boot actions, some things that move the pocket that get maybe Daniels into some levels concepts. I just, I'm not sure if they didn't have it really into their game package 
or that Hill didn't want to go to things that they hadn't been doing earlier in the game or what it was, but essentially their passing concepts that were in this game were too narrow once Frank Darby went out, okay? Because when you have to then start to throw back shoulders and contested balls to guys like Wilson and Bunkley Shelton, and this is their first Pac-12 game, I think that I think that you're reducing your own margin of error too much. They, I didn't see enough of uh, play actions to get tight ends involved, to uh, extend Daniels having more time where he could read the field and make decisions. I don't think you want him confined to the pocket. I don't think that you want him feeling like he has to target these freshmen or Jordan Porter, who hasn't really played much. And now you're asking him to make some types of catches and routes that he's never demonstrated before. So, you know, I get it that you feel like you're up two touchdowns and your defense has played well and you can continue to burn clock. And that is a Herm Edwards type of philosophy thing. But there were some opportunities that I think were missed where they could have probably gotten some first downs in that, uh, you know, not the last six minutes, five minutes, but in that earlier fourth quarter and in the late third quarter period. And before I go into kind of a position by position breakdown that we're going to we're going to touch on, I want to zero in on one kind of key moment in that final four minute stretch once usc starts their drive four minutes 28 seconds left that kind of is the drive that kick-started this whole downward spiral for asu it was the first touchdown pass that Keaton slovis had thrown in the fourth quarter it was on fourth and 13 but it was spearheaded in my opinion at least by an offside penalty on tyler johnson so trevor i want to get your opinion on this do you think that slovis even throws that ball that was tipped and then it falls into Brew McCoy's hands uh, for a touchdown. Do you think he even gets like throws that ball if Tyler Johnson isn't offsides and Slovis has a free play? Well, I think that's an important thing you point out, Mason. I think there's definitely a moment of hesitation there, right? It's fourth down. You have a chance to get USC off the field and maybe put an end to that game. And then all of a sudden that happens that, and that might create a little bit of a window. I think it's important to point out too on the last drive. So when USC scored, on the fourth and nine to London um, that it, it come also after a false start penalty. So uh, it was going to be a fourth and four for USC. They get backed up. You have another chance to take them off the field and then you miss an opportunity. there. kind of just going back to the point Chris was making um, about those last couple of minutes. So I think it definitely could have created some hesitation and it was some, certainly something that, um, you know, put a wrinkle in the play even before it happened. Can I just jump in? So there's no doubt, you know, Trevor, not to, yeah, the, the, there's no doubt that, that Slovis knew that Tyler Johnson had jumped off sides. And in that situation, he was guaranteed to be throwing the ball into the end zone. It's a free play, essentially. So the reason that and Mason, like that obvious, that to me, that's obvious. Like that, that's just football. Like you jump off sides, you have a free play, you know, it quarterback knows that you're going to throw the ball to the end zone in that situation. So, it, you know, importantly, uh, the most likely times that a quarterback is going to go for a hard count to try to get the team to jump off sides is fourth and five or fewer. And Slovis did it at least three or four times in this game, uh, at least 
two of those times, ASU players jumped off sides. One time it was actually two ASU players, Lole and I believe Johnson. Another time it was Johnson. Another time he uh, ASU players didn't jump off sides and uh, USC offensive linemen false started. But when when your your coach to understand the, the situation, the situation is a team doesn't want to have to run a play if they don't have to, to get a first down. So they try to run a hard count to get you to jump off sides. And then if you do, if you don't, if you don't jump off sides, then either they go with their play or they take a timeout and pump the ball, depending on where they're at on the field. That's the bottom line. And, um, you know, that, that was still a fluke at the end of the day, but it, they would have got another play. So it's not like we know what would have happened on the next play, even though it was, indeed a fourth down touchdown conversion right and jacob I, I promise i will get to you in a minute i have one more uh point for chris here when you look at the final asu drive this is after brew mccoy's touchdown on the tip and then he recovers the onside kick and then drake london gets the touchdown against kiwan markham which we, we've already mentioned was Zach Hill's play calling on ASU's final drive and the execution of it. I mean, obviously it didn't work out, but were they play calls that could have won ASU the game? And was it just a matter of poor execution? Uh, I think that's sort of debatable, you know, um, USC got real aggressive there and started to rush six guys on a couple of the, the key plays, which you would kind of anticipate the, um, you know, the first play, Daniels hits Porter in the soft spot of his own. You know, um, that was kind of a USC bad, you know, uh, uh, defensive sequence. Then you had, uh, you know, the one, the ball, that, the play that was overturned. What I would say about that is I, I don't understand how you can run a play. It's completed. Then ASU runs another play. And then the officials come on and say, that um, the, the replay process had already been initiated. I don't really get that. They overturned it. Then it was second and 10. USC went with a six-man pressure with cover one. The coverage was really good. The pass to Jordan Porter was broken up uh, by Steele. I, I, I mean, I, I think Jane Daniels kind of had to throw the ball there. The next play was third and 10. Daniels throws to Bunkley Shelton. That was the one where Shel Bunkley Shelton didn't um, – appeared to understand that was supposed to be a back shoulder ball. Daniels, I think, was frustrated after that play because the route was wrong. And then on the fourth and 10, uh, I think Daniels didn't have his feet set. Maybe he was either contacted or about to be contacted as he threw the ball. And that's just very slightly short hopped Bunkley Shelton, who was in position to where he maybe had a chance to right at the marker, make the, uh, the first down conversion again. I don't. I think you're putting too much on your on your offense with the receivers that you have with Frank Darby out of the game and against USC. When it comes down to that situation, I don't necessarily, um, you know, I don't have a strong faulting of those play calls. I more so think that they got a little bit too conservative earlier in the game and had some opportunities that they didn't put their foot on on the pedal. And as we kind of take a closer look at some of the position groups uh, starting on offense, Jacob, as I said, you had your notebook on the rushing game and the success of it against USC. Jaden Daniels rushes for 111 yards, Diamante Trainum 87 yards and two touchdowns, and Rashad White 79 yards in this game. What went right for ASU in the rushing department? 
Yeah, uh, I think Chris touched on it earlier, and I'll, I'll draw back to what Chris said, and that's that the run blocking was really good for ASU throughout this entire game. Kellen Deesh was very good. Uh, I mentioned John Stivers was very good in the run blocking. And then just ASU in general did a very good job of that. Uh, you know, you mentioned Jaden Daniels' rushing performance. Uh, there were a lot of situations where due to ASU's pass protection, which was inconsistent, like Chris said, throughout the game, Daniels was forced into situations where he had to run it, and he made the most of that. He became the first quarterback at Arizona State to rush for more than 100 yards uh, since 2013. Uh, Taylor Kelly rushed for 135 yards in the Holiday Bowl in 2013. Uh, it was a good rushing performance overall. I mean, we, we kind of hit on it. Uh, ASU's running backs scored all three of their touchdowns in the game. Uh, you know, just a very strong performance for a debut. Uh, Diamante Trainum, he is the uh, the first running back since ASU running back since 1990 to score two touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns in his freshman debut. Uh, you know, just a great performance all around from Arizona State's runners, and there's not much more really to say other than that, in my opinion. Yeah, that was definitely one of the the more positive developments of the offense overall. And Chris, you mentioned Curtis Hodges and that he played relatively well relative to some of the expectations maybe how would you evaluate the performance of the tight ends overall well they didn't get much chance to show what they can do in the passing game almost no chance really but uh from a, a operational standpoint those guys did a really good job i um i agree that stivers wasn't expected to do that much in my opinion but he was really physical played with good leverage and good feet as a blocker. Um, I think what happened essentially is Kyle Horn wasn't able to practice for, for a good chunk of the, you know, three week preparation essentially due to uh, contact tracing. So he started, but he wasn't probably utilized as much as anticipated. I did sort of think that he was going to, contend to start and it was weird that I thought he was like third on the depth chart I think it was more of just his availability and practices leading up to it but Stivers um, did better than I anticipated and, and played a really solid role Hodges I think did a good job as a blocker that one play notwithstanding those guys you know there's so many shifts and alignments and movements and it worked pretty seamlessly and they were very uh, um, impactful in the run game, if they can continue to get that from, from them. And then, um, you know, they can get some opportunities in the passing game. Uh, I think there's a, there's a chance for, for that group to really start trending in a much better direction. And when ASU has a rushing performance, like it did, you usually attribute that as well with good offensive line play, Chris. So I obviously have a bunch of new starters, Deesh, Haddis, who ended up getting hurt and Ladarius Henderson played uh, for that second half. Ben Scott at right tackle. How did the offensive line perform in both uh, a run blocking and pass pro standpoint? There's um, struggles, I think, in pass pro. USC creatively did a pretty good job with its odd front and figuring out how to like do some some interesting attacks that ASU struggled with. Uh, K. Cody probably had the worst day among the linemen from a pass pro standpoint. You know, he was going up against some pretty physical Malapea and, and other guys there. Henderson had some moments of weakness when he came in. I was sort of surprised actually that they didn't slide Ben Scott inside the guard and play Henderson at tackle. But that's one of those things that you miss because you're not out there watching it every day. We would have picked that up uh, had that been the case. But we did know that Henderson was going to be the, the the sixth guy, the guy who came in regardless. Just didn't expect that exact configuration. 
Um, again, Kellen Deesh, outstanding. They're, you know, we saw him in the spring. I was like, okay, this dude is really good. He moves great. His technique is awesome. Uh, I had heard some things were some, maybe some question marks about his physicality in, um, you know, in, in preseason camp, once they got the pads on and we're game got into some more contact, but no, I mean, he, not only did he look really good, he looked like he might be the best ASU left tackle that we've seen in years. Okay. Let's, I want to put it into that kind of perspective. And ASU's had some guys that were very good at left tackle. Evan Finkenberg uh, comes to mind. Jamil Douglas comes to mind. Those guys were probably just a notch below, a slight notch below first or second team, all conference caliber uh, when they were at ASU, you know, whatever it was, seven, eight, 10 years ago. And, um, and even though Deesh hasn't played at all, basically in his career, I saw someone who, I mean, he, NFL teams are going to be closely studying this guy. And he has the potential, however many games they play this year, to come back, play again next year. I think if he does that, he can actually be one of the better left tackles in the Pac-12. Is that, that he has great uh, – uh, he plays with phenomenal uh, um, uh, pad level, leverage, balance, footwork. Uh, he's athletic. He's a fluid mover. And I think that he had more toughness than I had anticipated. And some of those pulls that he was making uh, in, in their gap scheme was really impressive. I think Donovan West, from a physical standpoint, I mean, he really filled out uh, a lot better than, than last year uh, being out there. And Ben Scott, even though he had moments where he looked like, you know, a retro freshman, that guy looks like he's going to be a good player too. So, you know, really the offensive line, even though there were some pass protection, clearly issues, uh, I thought it was very encouraging sign for not only where they're at, but where they're headed. And before we move on to defense, Jacob, I know you had a point about uh, tight ends you wanted to make. Yeah, not, not to go backwards too much, but I, I did want to give a fact based on something that Chris said, because I do think it's important. And Chris, you mentioned that ASU's tight ends weren't really involved in the passing game, but they did play a good game against USC. I think it's important to mention that they actually served in the same role almost exactly with the amount of usage that they were done, that they were used in Zach Hill's offense when he was at Boise state. We did a pretty deep dive as the staff on what Zach Hill did at Boise state with his tight ends last year with at least one tight end on the field, roughly 80% of the time, and at least two tight ends on the field, roughly 40% of the time. And so just to kind of back up what Chris said with the overall numbers from what Hill did last year, it was very similar overall in terms of the usage that he had in this performance. And I just thought that that was an important point based on what you said, Chris. Yeah, very interesting. And we did, uh, we'll have a lot of analysis from our, our deep dive on Zach Hill's Boise State offense to come. But transitioning to defense now, it was a... Uh, uh, an overall good performance until that final four minute stretch. The the ASU's defense held USC to 14 points through three quarters. And obviously compared to last year when it was a 28 to seven game after the first quarter, uh, a lot to build on for ASU. They get three sacks on Keaton Slovis in this game, seven tackles for loss and three forced fumbles as well as an interception. Trevor specifically along the defensive line, it seemed at times they were putting Slovis under pressure, forced some, some, some errors and, and, hard hits leading to fumbles, but overall, how would you assess the the performance of the defensive line under Robert Rodriguez in his first game with ASU? 
Yeah, and this is one of the topics that we had talked about throughout preseason camp. You know, how well is ASU going to be able to establish a pass rush, especially at defensive end, where there's a couple guys transitioning from different positions. They're implementing a new scheme. Um, and how is this going to look under Robert Rodriguez? And I think from my personal view that it exceeded expectations a little bit from what they were able to do. Um, you talked about some of the guys that stood, uh, stood out. Jermaine Lelay had one and a half sacks. He looked really good on the inside. And then Michael Matus, who we saw get the start at defensive end, which we were thinking was a little bit of surprise when we saw the depth chart before the game, had half a sack and had some good moments there as well. And then Tyler Johnson came in and had a sack too. So I think from defensive end, they showed um, some good things along the defensive line that, uh, like I said before, was maybe exceeding what we were thinking coming in just because we didn't know. And, and Chris, zeroing in a bit more, last year under Jamar Kane, are you seeing after this first game any differences in terms of the technique? Obviously, the scheme is different, but in terms of the approach of the defensive linemen in their respective assignments compared to last year, that's maybe elevating the play of guys like Matus and, and possibly Shannon Foreman, some of these other veteran guys. Well, you know, definitely the technique is, is totally different because now you're going to a four-down uh, a look and so you're playing different you're lining up in different places on the field remember last year the, their, their defense was a the 335 was was quite different it was asymmetric attacks a lot more diagonal and lateral movements this is more of a straight ahead sort of a uh, approach um, you know more mano a mano but they they had they executed some very good twist actions some stunts that uh, Lole was able to take advantage of to get free on the one sack that he had where USC didn't uh, adjust well uh, at basically uh, uh, coming off so that they could get to the Lole stunt. Um, you know, Michael Matus, I think, played quite well, all things considered, you know, just given the limitation that of what his career has been to this point, being on the field and, and he's out there against USC, uh, you know, playing really physically. Tyler Johnson had, you know, I'm not surprised to see him go out there and have some really good reps. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, one of the better athletes and one of the higher upside guys on the team. You know, he just needs to be completely dialed in and, and that hasn't always been the case. Um, you know, I think there were some really good signs for where they're, where they're at, where they're going. They were physical against the run on the interior Omar Norman Lott, he had a couple plays, one in particular, I think maybe it was his first play on the field where he, uh, you know, adjusted and, and then ran back to get in on the tackle near the goal line, showed really great athleticism. I think, uh, you know, Stefan Wright showed some athleticism, even though he wasn't out there that much. Um, you know, they just need a little bit more talent at the end positions, uh, but Anthony Cooper a lighter, leaner version of him, probably down 15, 20 pounds from where he was at, um, you know, the beginning of this year. Uh, I think he also sort of, you know, held his own and looked pretty good. So Rodriguez definitely has um, the guys like trending in a direction that I see being uh, pretty potent. I just like the way the secondary rushes were. I like the way the guys bull rushed, moving their feet. I thought that, um, you know, they schemed it so that they had some actions that got guys some free runs and all that stuff's just going to only continue to look better as they do it more.
And Jacob, when we look at the linebackers last year, Merlin Robertson told Sun Devil Source that he he tried to cheat the game. We've had stories about that, and his performance dipped as a sophomore after winning the, the Pac-12 Freshman Defensive Player of the Year his first season. But he comes out against USC first game of the year. He's second on the team in tackles with 10. He gets a tackle for loss. He recovers a fumble, and he gets an interception. One, how... Do you assess Robertson's play and, and differences from last year and also just the linebackers as a whole with Kyle Soley making his his start as well as Darian Butler playing as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, Merlin was very good. He was awarded the, the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week award for his performance. He he recovered a fumble and and caused an interception. Uh, you know, he, he played really well. And Trevor has written a couple times about how uh, you know, Merlin Robertson last year didn't feel like he was at the peak of his game and he felt like he was cheating the game. And then, you know, throughout the offseason and the lead up to, to this campaign, he had told Trevor again that he was much more focused on just his craft and being able to execute his assignments with better focus on the game. And we saw that, I think, in the first game of the season. And Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this was kind of the performance that a lot of people were looking for in terms of just Merlin Robertson being able to show what he's capable of. And then you, know, you mentioned the rest of the linebackers. Chris had said it earlier in the podcast. It was a good overall performance from the group as a whole. Uh, Soli did drop an interception, which you know proved critical in the outcome of the game. But uh, it was a good performance overall for the group and, and especially Robertson. Right, and Soli's dropped interception that that really went right through his hands uh, leads to a USC touchdown on that drive. But Chris, do you do you find Robertson more motivated after this first game? I know he's been dealing with a lot since the spring, the passing of his father. Uh, do do you just see a more motivated Merlin Robertson after this first game? Yeah, I, it's hard to speak to someone's motivation exactly. You know, I I, I just the it's clicked to him the importance of what happens in, you know, all of the months between when you play a season and when the next season is okay. Like he's clearly lighter, leaner, he's more flexible. It's allowing his athleticism to show more. Uh, he knew exactly what he was supposed to be doing schematically. Uh, didn't, you know, I think he had a couple plays where he lost containment and, and maybe wasn't exactly where he was supposed to be, but he took on offensive lineman blockers more physically. Uh, he was much, much better in, from a coverage standpoint, the interception showed that very clearly, uh, you know, just the awareness, the ability to get the depth that he was supposed to get to the reaction to the ball. I, I just see somebody who is, is his habits are probably just getting better. You know, I, I don't, I never really question like his motivation or his desire to want to be a good football player. I think that's all there. I think it's more about like having the maturity to understand that that happens even when you're four months away from playing a football game and that, and, and not, they're not being a disconnect there. And I think that's now resonating upon him and how close that he is to being able to possibly change the lives of his family and his future, um, you know, if he's able to put it all kind of together. So, yeah, there still is more that he's going to have to show and do. And I, I, I've been saying I don't think he's quite as good of an NFL prospect as some others have indicated, like Mel Kuyper and whatnot. But if, if he keeps playing like he did in that game, uh, he's going to go a long way toward alleviating some of those uh, outstanding concerns about uh, where he's at from a, a skill and athleticism standpoint. 
And when we look at the performance of the secondary, Trevor, first of all, I know Chris uh, took the Twitter after he rewatched the game, gave praise to Jack Jones and Chase Lucas and Jordan Clark for their performances, respectively. Uh, the safety room, interesting. DeAndre Pierce and and excuse me, Evan Fields get the start in a majority of the playing time. Evan Fields leads the game in tackles with 17, a good performance by him. Overall, how would you assess the play of the secondary and the lack of Ashari Crosswell in this game? Yeah, so talent has never been a concern for the secondary, right? And especially with their cornerbacks. Jack Jones was a top-ranked cornerback recruit out of high school before what happened with him at USC. And then when Chase Lucas converted to the position out of Chandler High School from running back, he was an all-Pac-12 second-team performer and then just had some concerns with consistency in the last few years. But I think those guys really performed. You know, you mentioned Chris tweeted about it when he went back and watched the game and watching the game too. They, it really seemed like they didn't give up anything vertically. Um, there was one play I remember in the game where Jack Jones was beat for a second by a USC outside receiver and came back and was able to make a tip on the play down the field. And those guys really did seem lock in and energized throughout the game. Chase Lucas had the forced fumble in the fourth quarter. Um, so those guys came out and showed and, and they said that they're going to have to do that this year collectively in order to reach their goal. They've talked about going top 10, top 15 in the draft. So that's something to follow there. Evan Fields, you know, transition from him coming from Tillman um, into more of a strong safety or in this type of safety role with ASU's new scheme. And as you mentioned, Mason had 17 tackles, was an aggressive player last year. And we saw that more again um, on Saturday with the two forced fumbles that he had. Um, and before DeAndre Pierce went out of the game, he had some good reps as well. Um, you know, talking about Shari Crosswell, we'll, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But overall, I, I thought the secondary performed um, very well. Jordan Clark was in that mix, too, um, in that first game. And Chris, I, I know that obviously, as I said, you tweeted about this. I want to get more into Crosswell's absence as well. Uh, and we can touch on that in a minute. But overall, why were you so high on the play of some of these guys in the secondary? I mean, they balled out, like, playing blank. Uh, tell me one play that Jack Jones or Chase Lucas or even Tamarcus Davis gave up outside the numbers at a depth of more than, like, 10 to 15 yards. It did not happen in the game, right? And, you know, part of that, of course, is, they, you know, they were playing zone coverage for a lot of it. But either way – Whatever techniques that you play, you still have to execute and teams can beat you. I saw one play in the entire game that was a coverage that was a coverage bust, a real actually a guy doing the wrong thing. Jack Jones had his eyes in the backfield playing zone when he was supposed to take, I think it was St. Brown coming over the middle. He didn't. He released him uh, thinking, you know, that um, it was zone, but it wasn't. And that that was that was a breakdown. Other than that. I, I didn't see anything, you know, like late in the game, ASU got a little bit loose, got a little squirrely, it tends to happen like that. They had that one completion over the middle that was in the soft spot of his zone. I believe it was in front of DeAndre Pierce. It was hard to tell exactly because they didn't replay it. And, um, you know, the, the, the TV copy was too tight and I haven't had a chance to see if I have that one in the all 22 that I shot from the press box. But, um, you know, DeAndre Pierce played exceedingly well for his first game. I thought he was in the right place virtually all of the time. Uh, uh, Evan Fields, he had 17 tackles. I think he had like maybe two missed tackles in the whole game that I counted. Uh, he was reactive. He was in the right spot. He felt his way in zone coverage extremely well. Uh, he closed down to the play great. I mean, 
that looked like a guy who's getting ready to get drafted. Okay, he's a really impressive athlete. His his tackling form and skill level really improved, I think, in that game. Jordan Clark in a very difficult situation when you're playing in the slot, you have these really challenging leverage situations where you have to uh, allow the receiver to declare where he's headed before you start guessing because then you can get beat and double moves and vertical attacks. He didn't really give up anything that was significant. He, he, there was a few times when he didn't have quite tight enough coverage, but that's an acceptable mistake for somebody who's a freshman thrust into that type of a situation. His tackling for not being a big guy was really good. He was square, physical, played low. He didn't try to do it with his head or dip his shoulder down. Uh, Chase Lucas, also the same thing. A guy who was in, in the past had poor tackling uh, a technique. Did not demonstrate that at all in this game. I thought ASU overall tackled quite well for this being their first game, uh, especially against athleticism like USC, which has in the past made ASU look really bad from a tackling standpoint in, in previous regimes. For ASU's coaches to be able to get that done, very impressive. I can't say enough about how the secondary performed by AS, for ASU in this game, and uh, especially considering there's just no way that they will play a passing attack as good as USC the rest of this game, unless perhaps it's against, uh, you know, maybe like Oregon, if they somehow are able to get to a Pac-12 title game. Right, and the key uh, decision down the stretch after DeAndre Pierce gets what, what seems to be an injury, they put Markham, Kiwan Markham in the game, and then Slovis immediately targets him on the 4th and 13 to Drake London, that ends up in a touchdown. I know you touched on it, Chris, with, with Markham just reaching with the wrong hand, but can you get into more on why Crosswell was not the guy they decided to put in in that situation? Bottom line, Ashari Crosswell was just beaten out in camp, preseason practices. Now, Crosswell and Lole went home for uh, a funeral, and then when they came back, because of the COVID protocols, they weren't able to practice for a while. That was in... Uh, uh, October. So, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, Marvin Lewis, Chris Hawkins, they're going to play the people that they're very confident are going to execute the assignments and the techniques within the assignments that are required within the defense. And very clearly that happened in this game, because as I said earlier, there's only one actual coverage breakdown, which for a first game, is like that's almost shockingly good really and that's where what i talked about uh, all off season about how asu had a lot more time with uh, skill development with coaches working with players on the field and even in 11 on 11 settings and specifically to prepare for usc that's where all of this sort of showed up it, it showed up everywhere on defense for asu very clearly to me especially in the secondary ashari crosswell athletically is um you know, you know, almost unmatched in the ASU secondary. When you consider his size, his tackling, I think pro football focus said he was like the, had the fewest missed tackle percentage of any safety returning to college football from last year. Um, you know, but he had some assignment errors last year. He had some leveraging problems, uh, struggled at times in some man coverage situations. And at the end of the day, you know, if he's not demonstrating that assignment soundness on the back end where you have 100% confidence and you have other guys 
who, let's face it, they're good athletes. It's not like DeAndre Pierce was athletically, you know, beaten. Kiwan Markham is a big, you know, athletic dude himself. So uh, I just think it's a combination of ASU having a lot of talent and uh, players that they feel really confident in the secondary and Crosswell needing to show a little bit more. My understanding is that they're just going to continue to evaluate on a week by week basis. And maybe Crosswell uh, um, demonstrates sort of the fluency that, that they make them content and happy to uh, feel comfortable putting them out there on the field more. That'll definitely be a position battle we follow closely, although we won't be able to attend practices in person as we've touched on in previous podcasts. But I want to get into the coaching standpoint and element of this, Chris, very quickly, because you mentioned the play of the secondary and you tweeted this. Chris Hawkins, AC's defensive backs coach first year, should be proud for their performance and and. When you look at his coaching and, and seeing how the players performed as well as some of the other coaches on staff in their first game, how would you evaluate it overall? Well, I think defensively, they, um, it was great, you know, and like, I get it. Like USC had 95 plays and scored two touchdowns on fourth downs in this, in the last four minutes. Um, I don't think that that really goes to the overall approach or the coaching you know, schematically, it's like uh, the the guys were in position basically to make plays within inches, um, even on those, you know, and, and USC didn't run the ball like really well and uh, didn't get big plays vertically. I mean, what, like, you know, I, and the limitations that ASU has with defensive end, you know, I, I just, all in all, like they did good on offense. I think that they, um, you know, there were some missed opportunities. I, I, I don't, I, I'm curious that they didn't have more diversity of, um, of scheme installed for the game, you know, or if they did, why they left so much uh, unused on the play sheet, you know, in the, in the third and fourth quarter, you know, there, there, you know, there were no trick plays. There were, there weren't a lot of like, you know, misdirection play action type things or just there were you know i just think it was very a lot more kind of even though there were a lot of shifts and motion stuff like that which is just like that's standard that's just a hallmark of what zach hill and boise state offense do but uh you know i i just think that there were some some creative things that they probably could have done in that second half to give them a little bit more of a chance to burn more clock and build more lead and as we wrap up here, we, we take a look ahead with California on tap for ASU this next week, depending on, on COVID and, and how that plays into a possible cancellation, a couple games canceled this first week of the season. But Jacob, as, as I said, we wrap things up here. Final thoughts. What does ASU kind of take away most from this loss? Uh, I mean, I think that it's a combination of just how well they played defensively and how it's, they're going to have to continue that performance for the rest of the season. And I think that it'll be interesting to see uh, how well they're going to be able to continue the defensive performance from here on out. And the other thing is just being able to find more consistency offensively. Can Jaden Daniels develop a better rapport with his young new receivers or guys that didn't really play much in the past? Uh, it's Andre Johnson, Ricky Pearsall to a degree, even though he appeared in every game last year. Uh, you know, is Jaden going to be able to develop that connection? And, and there's not really a lot of time to do that this year. Uh, they only got 
five more regular season games and Cal is kind of in the balance still depending on whether or not they're going to be able to play it like you mentioned. So I think that the biggest takeaways are uh, can Jaden rapidly develop a connection with the young receivers and then uh, just how well ASU can continue its defensive performance. Trevor, what are you looking toward most as, as ASU moves forward from this? Yeah, I think of on top of what Jacob mentions, it's how does ASU find itself internally now? Because you spend the whole offseason getting ready for this game against USC. It doesn't go your way. That's a big opportunity for your potential hopes to win a Pac-12 championship. And now the margin for error is even thinner, right? For the rest of the season, you basically have to win out and hope that USC slips somewhere along the way. That's nothing you can control. But how does ASU find itself and recommit to preparation after a game like that. That's what I'm looking forward to seeing in the week ahead um, and what else is to come. Chris, final thoughts. I could be wrong, but I kind of do not anticipate an emotional hangover. I, um, uh, I think it was a very physical game, even more so watching it again on TV after being there in person. Uh, and so they may be bruised and, and, and battered to some degree. And sometimes that has a lingering effect with your preparation. Um you know, their, their coaches are going to rally them and tell them that, you know, which is true that USC looked far from, uh, um, you know, being an, a overwhelmingly likely to like run the table or anything like that. Uh, ASU, sh- to my eye, should probably be favored in every game that it plays the rest of this year. Um, you know, when, when, you, when, even though it was a, you know, probably the most consequential game in the South and the result was really hard. I think you can hang your hat on the fact that you were basically the better team for almost the entire game. Uh, It's, you know, that's not going to be debilitating emotionally and uh, defensively. I think they have a really great uh, chance to be uh, an excellent team. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, you know, I don't even know if we're going to see a Cal game this week, but the, I guess overall what I would say, Mason, is ASU wasn't out-athleted by USC, and I think ASU out-coached USC, okay? So we're seeing the recruiting sort of continue to tighten the disparity that has typically existed between these teams coupled with USC having that one bad sort of class and recruiting where ASU's at with its freshmen. Uh, I think that the, the overall, you know, the game was a, uh, you have a 99 point whatever chance to win. It's like, that's a heartbreaker, but I think the, the, I'm always looking at overall trend lines, the overall trend line for ASU remains very positive. I think 2021 has a chance to be a pretty special year. It'll all be determined by developing the talent they're bringing in via recruiting. But that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Jacob Rudner and Trevor Booth. I'm your host, Mason Kern, saying so long. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.